Gresham College presents What's Happened to Childhood. Professor Hugh Cunningham, University of Kent. And what I want to tell you this evening is a story of two narratives about childhood. One's progressive and positive, and the other's depressing and negative. In 1942, the poet and essayist Sylvia Lind admitted that year that we have our temporary misfortunes, but she was confident that the story of English children is a story that moves towards a happy ending. Try saying that in 2014. No one now imagines that the story of English children is moving towards a happy ending. News reporting of the state of childhood is almost uniformly negative. Children, we know, we learn, are obese. Children suffer high rates of self-harming and mental illness. Children are described as couch potatoes slumped in front of screens. Children suffer from attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Children are materialistic, hooked on consumerism. An alarming number of children seem to be autistic or to suffer from dyslexia. And since the 1970s, so research shows, the world which children explore on their own has shrunk by a factor of nine. This is not a purely British phenomenon, but according to what we read, it's worse in Britain than anywhere else. When in 2007, UNICEF did a survey of children in 21 advanced economies, you probably know where the United Kingdom came. 21st. And things don't seem to be getting better. There was a report last year showing that three quarters of German junior school children were allowed to travel home from school alone. Only one quarter of British children. In 2006, Sue Palmer published a book called Toxic Childhood. Our children, she argued, are being poisoned, not only by the food they eat and the drink they drink, but also by the messages they receive from, that invite them into a world of consumption and sexualization. So here are the two narratives. I want to show how and why Sylvia Lind was so optimistic in 1942, how that optimism survived for another 30 years or so after 1942, but then <laughs> collapsed in the early 1970s to be succeeded by the negative narrative. And I want to suggest that the power of these narratives is such that they form a framework within which we fit everything we hear about children and childhood. Further, that we go out to look for facts which will reinforce the narrative. So let me start with the progressive narrative. It's shaped as a romance, that most basic of human stories. It starts in the olden times, once upon a time, a historically unspecific period when children like adults, lived in the countryside, helped their parents around the house, in the garden, on the farm, gradually taking on more responsible roles as they grew older. There was no great sentimentality about children, 
life was too hard and demanding for that. They were treated, so the story claimed, as little adults. Though that phrase, I think, is an imposition on earlier centuries by the 19th century. Neither families nor society were child-oriented. The life course was pictured as a triangle. You started at the base of the triangle as a baby, climbed up to the height in middle age, and then began the descent downwards to there. Childhood, as Shakespeare described it, consisted of the infant mewling and puking and of the whining schoolboy going unwillingly to school. The childhood years were not as they were to become the best years of life. This world, depicted as stable and hardly changing, was, according to the narrative, disrupted by two forces that came to prominence in the late 18th century. The first was Romanticism, and the second was the Industrial Revolution. If we look a little bit before Romanticism took hold, I think we could argue that until the late 18th century, there were two main modes of child-rearing. The first, strongest amongst Puritans, saw the baby as born in sin. The task of parenting was to bring the child to a consciousness of sin and to the means of salvation. This was not something that could be left to chance or time. Children's lives were fragile. Isaac Watts, in 1715, in his Divine Songs, attempted in easy language for the use of children, taught children to sing this. And you might just might try and imagine yourself, aged about six, singing this. There is an hour when I must die, nor do I know how soon twill come. A thousand children, young as I, are called by death to hear their doom. The second mode of child-rearing, strongly influenced by John Locke's 1693 Some Thoughts Concerning Education, placed the emphasis on instilling into children habits and thoughts that would conduce to the emergence of rational adults. Education, as far as possible, was to be made enjoyable, but all to the end of producing the desired adult. Romanticism in this context was, I think, revolutionary. The child moved center stage and was far from being tainted with original sin or, as in the Lockean view, a mere blank slate. Take Blake's, Blake's Songs of Innocence. He has a two-day old child talking to his mother. I have no, I, no, no name. I am but two days old. What shall I call thee? I happy am. Joy is my name. Sweet joy befall thee. Now that may sound very obvious and simple, but it is actually, I think, a totally new way of looking at childhood. And it, it had its uh, it is not a very good reproduction of a famous picture, The Age of Innocence, by Joshua Reynolds. But this became the template from then onwards for how you would depict children, children sitting amidst nature in a country innocent. 
Wordsworth, in his enormously influ influential but curiously titled Ode on Intimations of Immortality from Recollections of Early Childhood, claimed, in a phrase which came much mocked later, but claimed that babies came trailing clouds of glory from God who is our home. Children were now messengers from God, imbued with a sensitivity to nature and an inborn morality. They could teach adults how to live. A good childhood became the foundation block for later life, but growing up in this perspective was a process of loss. Childhood was now seen as the best time of life. The life course thereafter, downhill. Childhood, they reiterated again and again, should be happy. It's an indication of how pervasive the influence of Romanticism was that in the 1840s, Thomas Guthrie, a Scottish evangelical minister, forgetting about original sin, could proclaim that God made childhood to be happy. And what uh, was the kind of uh, trigger for him saying that was watching children at play in the grass market in Edinburgh, which was an extremely poor part of Edinburgh at that time. Now, the other uh, big impact of the late 18th century was the Industrial Revolution, which itself became associated with the explo exploitation of child labor in factories and mines. As J.L. and Barbara Hammond put it in The Town Laborer, 1917, I don't think it would have been at all controversial when they wrote it, during the first phase of the Industrial Revolution, the employment of children on a vast scale became the most important social feature of English life. Child labor was came to be seen as a denial of childhood as the Romantics imagined it. Coleridge, for example, took a leading role in trying to end it. And we need to, sort of, to get a sense of how revolutionary, in my view, this was to look back to what people were saying in the late 17th and early 18th century. John Locke, had, war, had wanted all children above three whose families sought relief from the parish to be sent to a working school, a school where they would work to earn their keep. Daniel Defoe rejoiced in reports of children of four or five earning their own keep in the textile trades. Romanticism, in combination with evidence of children's working conditions in the Industrial Revolution, killed such notions. By the 1830s, Samuel Roberts, a leading campaigner against the use of boys to clean chimneys, was describing how ever a toiling child doth make us sad. Such children, it was said, were children without childhood. Childhood now painted in romantic colors. For Sylvia Lind in 1942, the story of the industrial age is the story of the martyrdom of children. If the progressive story of childhood is a romance, the industrial revolution was the crisis. But a romance has to have a happy ending. Fortunately for both nation and children, rescue was at hand. In the story, as it was constructed in the second half of the 19th century, philanthropists, Lord Ashley most prominent, 
took up the cause of the children in mines and factories. He was, as a biography of 1926 put it, our British Abraham Lincoln, the emancipator of industrial England. Or in another phrase, the Moses who led the children of bondage into their promised land. The promised land was in one sense childhood. More mundanely, it was school. Ashley's concern stretched beyond working children. He took up the cause of street children who were at the forefront of public attention in the mid-19th century. Here, too, school was seen as the remedy, first in the ragged schools pioneered in the 1840s and then in the spread of compulsory schooling in the late 19th century. And again, we have numerous pictures of street children and of street life. Uh, and of, uh, here is uh, the, the rescue in operation, if you like. This is one of Bernardo's faked before and after photos, which he used to try and raise money. He would dress up these, he would find these children who were doubtless in pretty miserable circumstances, but he had a special lot of clothing for them, and he made them look thoroughly miserable. Here he is, age 14, photographed before and after, and he's, he's been rescued. In the story of the rescue, there was one further element, the rescue of children from neglect, mistreatment, and abuse by adults. Here, the NSPCC, founded in 1889, was seen as playing the crucial role. The NSPCC was supremely successful in constructing a version of history in which children enjoyed no protection under law and it itself, until it itself provided such protection. Government, in harness with philanthropists, played a crucial role in the rescue of children. It passed Factory Acts and Education Acts and what were called Children's Charters. It set up inspectorates. Arnold Toynbee, who was an inspirational figure in setting up the notion of the Industrial Revolution as a social crisis, trembled to think what this country would have been but for the Factory Acts. Now, Romanticism's impact and resonance, I think, left three lasting legacies. First, childhood, as the best time of life, should be prolonged. The raising of the school leaving age was the most influential way of doing this, starting at 10 in 1880 and now 18. Second, children and adults should, as far as possible, inhabit, inhabit separate realms the adult world defined as dangerous for children. Special spaces should be created for children, schools, playgrounds, and adult spaces such as pubs denied them. And third, romanticism provided a story, a narrative of things getting better. And we can see that narrative in place with the reflections on childhood offered on the occasion of Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee in 1897, the end of the century, and then Queen, Queen Victoria's death. The romance was now complete. Children had gone through the crisis of the Industrial Revolution and been rescued for childhood. The nation could congratulate itself. In 1897, 
W. Clark Hall, a barrister who worked with the NSPCC, described how when Victoria came to the throne, the great juggernaut car of unscrupulous commercialism, private greed, and domestic inhumanity rolled upon its way with none to hinder. Tracing our way back down the dim avenues of the years, we see the white and mouldering bones of the child victims which its cruel wheels have crushed. But the juggernaut had now, in 1897, been halted. Year by year, the number of its victims become more few, the shouts of the happy rescued children more loud and more glad. Happy children themselves learnt the story. In the elementary schools, they sang a song entitled, Oh Happy English Children. I found evidence of it both in Durham and in Kent, but I haven't been able to find the words. You can set yourself a task of trying to imagine them if you get bored in the rest of this talk. Here is how the Scottish Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children told the story. It comes from City Sparrows, the magazine of the junior branch, the League of Pity. Sixty years ago, when Victoria came to the throne, the children of the nation were in thousands of instances being done to death, morally and physically, in wretched homes in which they slowly pined and starved to death, in factories closely confined and set to watching the droning turning wheels until released. Sick and faint at night, they crept wearily home with no heart to rejoice in their childhood, no thought but to rest. And worse still, down in the dark mines underground, little, helpless, naked children toiled in the coal pits. Think what that must have been, you children, who loved the bright sunshine and the green fields. But the rescue happened and was ongoing. Since the Queen's accession, city sparrows went on, 107 Acts of Parliament have been passed relating to child life and child suffering. And now, you happy children, throughout the length and breadth of Scotland, we would appeal to you to commemorate the glorious 60 years of our Queen by joining the League of Pity and so helping to carry on the work for suffering children. She has done so much to further. And we can see again in the picturing of children uh, the rescue achieved. This is Kate Greenaway's uh, illustration of Hark, Hark, the dogs do bark, the beggars are come to town. It's set, curiously, in the countryside. There's no town there, there's a, a farmhouse, and the beggars are sort of disappearing into, into the background. Up in the foreground, the child, safely protected by a fence, a gate, and a dog. This is how childhood should be, enclosed and safe within a garden. And here is a, a picture I take more or less at random from a, a book I picked up a few years ago called Children in Art, which is one of those books where you, ha you have um, postcards you can, you can pull out, about 50 of them. Nearly all 50 of them were something like this, of a, a child sitting in nature, surrounded preferably by animals and uh, this is, I think, from the 1910s or early 20s. So the story is established, I think, by the turn of the 19th, 20th century. 
and there was no significant threat to it in the first half of the 20th century, rather it became embedded. In 1903, the author of a standard textbook, H. de B. Gibbons, summarized his account in the words, only think of the triumphs that have been won in this generation for the children of England. Move forward a century, 2004, and imagine yourself saying that. In the interwar years, the journalist and suffragist Evelyn Sharp described how as a young girl in the 1880s, sorry, she had no idea that she stood at the dawn of a new age that was going to revolutionize all childhood and had done so, she thought, and for the better. In 1930, Sir George Newman, chief medical officer in the Ministry of Health, lecturing to the Shaftesbury Society, a society to commemorate Ashley's work, could rejoice that one of the darkest chapters of our social history was over. The long and shameful story of cruelty and oppression is ended. Children, it was frequently said, had a right to health and happiness, and increasingly they enjoyed both. Sylvia Lind celebrated that achievement in 1942. Progress was not confined to Britain. The principle behind factory legislation, claimed Sidney Webb in 1910, has spread to every industrial community in the old world and the new. In the 1830s, people across the world looked to Britain in horror at its use of child labor. It had an unenviable notoriety shared only by Belgium. By the early 20th century, it was priding itself on setting the path of progress. And the narrative kept going, I think, just about into the 1970s, in both national and at international level. I'll just give you three markers. In 1973, two very well-respected historians, Ivy Pinchbeck and Margaret Hewitt, published the second of two volumes on children in English society. And their second volume started in the 18th century. And they open with a chapter entitled Childhood Without Rights and Protection. Children in the 18th century described as being little adults. They end the volume in triumph with the Children Act of 1948. It's a story of progress. That was 1973. 1974, Lloyd de Meuse, we're crossing the Atlantic here in America, uh, edited an influential book called The History of Childhood. And he, he argued that um, parent-child relations had gone through six stages over time. These ones I got at the bottom here, the infanticidal mode of child rearing was the first, the abandonment, you just leave your child out to die, the ambivalent, the intrusive, the socialization is getting better, and finally in the mid-20th century, the helping mode. And what he's arguing is that somehow parents have, have got to a stage when they can actually understand their children can help them. And he starts with this famous or infamous statement, the further back in history one goes, the lower the level of childcare, the more likely children are to be killed, abandoned, beaten, terrorized, and sexually abused. So there's still optimism. 
And in 1973 also, at a world level, the International Labour Organization passed its Minimum Wage Convention, setting 15 as the age below which no child should work. Very soon, that began to look not only not achievable, but perhaps also something that it would not be desirable to achieve, that you might in some circumstances be happy to see children below 15 working. So what happened in the 1970s and 80s? Well, 1974 saw the first sustained attack on the story and what it implied for children. John Holt's book, Escape from Childhood. Childhood, said Holt, was portrayed it, childhood for, for Holt was portrayed as an institution, a kind of prison with powers to lock the young into 18 years or more of subserviency and dependence and make of them a mixture of expensive nuisance, fragile treasure, slave and super pet. Childhood, he said, goes on far too long. What is both new and bad about modern childhood is that childhood are so cut off from the adult world. This was the first frontal assault on the image of childhood that had been built up in the 19th and the first three quarters of the 20th century. But it would be naive, I think, to place too much emphasis on Holt and the short-lived movements for child liberation, which were in some extent inspired by him. Larger factors were involved in the dismantling of the progressive narrative and its replacement by the one we know today. And at root, they had little directly to do with childhood. The oil crisis of 1973 seems to me the great turning point in the history of the post-war world in the West. The moment when optimism about the future shriveled. It opened the way to what initially was called Reaganomics, what has come to be called neoliberalism, the belief in the justice and virtue of the market and the demonization of welfare states as a drag on economic progress. And the impact of these developments on children was dramatic. In Britain in the 1980s and 90s, the proportion of children living in poverty rose from one in 10 to one in three, a statistic that led easily into a negative narrative that things were getting worse. In the developing world and also in the developed world, child labor began to increase. The facts began to impinge on world consciousness through the pamphlets published by the Anti-Slavery Society between 1978 and 1988, but there was also work beginning looking at the extent of child labor in Britain. In the developed world, the transition from childhood to adulthood which in the late 60s and early 70s have become concentrated in a few short years in the late teens and early 20s, now stretched out over a decade or more. This was largely due to youth unemployment, which has dogged the Western world ever since. We can see the collapse of the old confidence about what constituted a proper childhood and about the direction in which society was moving taking shape from the early 1980s. And the keynote was now not optimism, but anxiety. 
Within 10 years of John Holt's demand for an escape from childhood, Neil Postman, in 1982, was lamenting the disappearance of childhood. His was one of a number of books published around that time, and many since, arguing that the barriers that properly, properly existed between childhood and adulthood were being dangerously lowered. Children were ceasing to be children. Postman had many successes in laments about the undermining of childhood and in campaigns to hold on to it or to bring it back. At a quite different level, that of academic history, in 1983, Linda Pollock published a book called Forgotten Children, Parent-Child Relations from 1500 to 1900. And this marked a really big change in the view of the past, which had generally gone along with the optimistic narrative. Pollock ruthlessly dismantled the progressive narrative. Far from being a hell, she said, the past was now a country where parents had always done the best for their children. Pollock rigorously avoided nostalgia, but parents, reading it in the later 20th century, remember Pollock stopped in 1900, might well wonder whether 20th century parents were doing as well as their forebears. Coinciding with this, economic historians were dismantling and questioning the Industrial Revolution. First of all, they, they took away the capital letters, and then they began to question it altogether and began to talk about evolution. And, more significant for our purposes, they quietly dropped child labor from its previous central position, both in academic history and in the progressive narrative. And without child labor, the progressive narrative was undermined from within. Because in many ways, I think it was child labor, the crisis which it brought for childhood, and the rescue which was then described, which set the framework for the progressive one. And so there began to emerge a new narrative. And it's one which people of my generation love to tell. We were taught the progressive narrative, and we've seen it disintegrate. Our story begins with our own childhoods in the middle years of the 20th century and ends in the present. In our childhoods, we say, we had freedom to explore our world without constant adult supervision. Depending on our social background and where we lived, our mothers might turn us out of doors after breakfast and tell us not to come back until tea time, or we might have the freedom to roam the countryside, a kind of Arthur Ransom, Swallows and Amazon childhood. No one talked about health and safety or about risk assessment. Autism, dyslexia, self-harming, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, eating disorders, the things parents and children worry about now, none of these featured in our lives, or as far as we knew, in those of our parents. In these childhoods, it's always summertime. We had scrapes and knocks. Probably some old man, sad old man in a mac, exposed himself to us, but we took this in our stride. I sometimes think we ought to factor in boredom into these stories of our childhood, but even that wouldn't alter the overall conclusion. Our childhoods were happy. They were proper childhoods. 
I've come to associate this pessimistic narrative with the Daily Mail. In 2006, I was asked to write something for the Daily Mail on the history of childhood, a new opportunity for an academic historian to reach a new readership. At about one pound a word and with 2,000 words to play with, it was an offer that was difficult to refuse. But I was told, a little, some way into writing this thing, Paul Dacre would take a particular interest in what I wrote. And unless I could show that childhood had got worse since the 1950s, he wouldn't publish it. I did my best, but not enough. It was archived. Now, I look back on it, I think in some ways Paul Dacre was quite right. He knew exactly what his readers wanted to hear. They wanted to have their story confirmed. And I was trying to challenge it. It could be said that this negative narrative has such a hold on us, it's actually quite difficult to find any space in which to challenge it. Few of us here would probably wish to be thought to have a Daily Mail version of childhood, but that, in essence, I think, is what many of us have. The pessimistic narrative gains much of its potency from names, the names of children who have died through neglect or been murdered or abducted. Maria Colwell, killed by her stepfather in 1973, despite in the last nine months of her life 30 complaints about the way her mother and stepfather treated her. Jasmine Beckford, starved and battered to death in 1984. James Bulger, murdered by two other children in 1993. Sarah Payne, murdered by a paedophile in 2000. Victoria Climbier, dying of hypothermia in 2000 after months of neglect and abuse. Madeleine McCann, abducted in 2007. Peter Connolly, baby P, dying in 2007 after neglect by his mother and her boyfriend. You can add to the ghastly roll call, and it goes on. In the negative narrative, the world now is far from being a safe place for children. In home, street, school, in the institutions often called homes, where some children have lived, many of them church-run. In the BBC or in hospital, a story tells us there is danger for children. So there are the two narratives. The most obvious question to ask of them is, are they true? I'll make some attempt to answer that, but I want also to consider the implications of narratives of the kind we have, both for childhood and for children. If we ask, are they true? The answer has to be, I think, yes and no. Take the progressive narrative. It's difficult to deny that on key measurements like life expectancy, health, standard of living, level of education, it was indeed a story of progress. Even on these issues, however, there was a degree of over-egging. Sir George Newman, whom we encountered earlier, went to great lengths 
to deny evidence of children's poor health in the northeast of England in the interwar years. Similarly, the Home Office consistently downplayed the existence of child labour, continuing child labour, in the first half of the 20th century. It's when we widen the focus to look at some of the policies set in place for the rescue of children that the progressive story begins seriously to fray. The NSPCC version of history was, I'm afraid, false. There's now a lot of evidence that uh, there was protection for children in law before the NSPCC. I'll just give you one bit of it. The Times, between 1785 and 1860, I before the NSPCC, reported 385 cases of child neglect and sexual abuse, only 7% resulting in a not guilty verdict. There is considerable evidence of neighbourhood sanctions against parents who were perceived to be cruel. One magistrate in the 1820s, finding there was insufficient evidence to convict someone who was up before him for cruelty and abuse, looked up into the gallery of the court and said, uh, I'm sure you'll know what to do when he leaves the dock. And he was attacked. But all this was forgotten as the NSPCC version of history took root. There were further problems with the rescue narrative. For many children, being rescued meant living in an institution, and we have become very aware of the inhumanity that can reside in institutions. Other rescue policies were more far-reaching, especially the emigration of children overseas to Canada and then to Australia. There might be good intentions behind some of these policies, but that does not defend them against accusations that they seriously infringe the rights of those children who were emigrated. In short, the invocation to children to be happy, to acquire, as Evelyn Sharp urged, the habit of happiness, was asking a lot of children who experienced nothing that might make them happy. As to the negative narrative, there is again much truth in it. But the negative narrative, too, has been built on some shaky foundations. And the thing that strikes me most about much of the so-called evidence is a very basic confusion between a correlation and a cause. Just to give you an example, children who watch a lot of te television are rated more materialistic than those who watch less. But you can't jump from the correlation to say that it's watching too much television that makes them more materialistic. It might equally well be the other way around, or there might be other factors involved. And there are many cases of this which come up in the research that's been done. People almost know the answers to the research before they start it. And how interesting, I think, that materialism which you might say is at the heart of politicians' appeal to the adult public, is thought to be quite unacceptable for children. So are there any reasons to be cheerful? Well, when UNICEF in 2013 published a further study of children's well-being in the richer countries, the headlines and articles had in some sense been written before the report emerged. We knew it would be bad news. 
the negative narrative demanded that. It was, in fact, even on the most cursory look, better news than in 2007. Britain had climbed out of bottom place and was now 16th out of 29 countries. But while grudgingly accepted, accepting this, most reporting highlighted the negative. You wouldn't have known that the report showed improvement, as I've shown here. A decline in infant mortality, a decline, we're talking about the first decade of the 21st century, a decline in child poverty levels, and then from these, from these figures onwards are for 11, 13, and 15-year-olds, a decline in the incidence of bullying, a decline in the incidence of fighting, a decline in drunkenness, a decline in cannabis use, a decline even in being overweight, apparently. And 86% asked to rate their lives gave a pretty positive version. There's another survey of this, the 2006 Youth Survey of the British Household Panel Survey showed 87% of 11 to 16-year-olds rating their life as a whole as happy rather than unhappy. 9% were neutral and only 4% unhappy. Moving beyond the question of the truth or otherwise of the narratives, what are the implications of having narratives of this kind at all? In essence, it seems to me, the new narrative, the negative one, is as much infected by romanticism as the old. At its heart lies a belief in the desirability of the separation and distinctiveness of adulthood and childhood. This suggests to me that the power of the narratives has much, if not more, to do with adulthood as it does with childhood. I just want to explore this a little further. A few years ago, uh, I spent some time on an assessment panel set up by the then Department of Children's Schools and Families, by, by Ed Balls, to look at the impact of the commercial world on children's well-being. And we were asked to compare the present with the past, well, the past 50 years, and that's, I was there as a historian who was supposed to know that, the answer to that. And we were urged to look for positive benefits of the commercial world as well as negative ones. But of course, the panel had been set up precisely because of concern about the negative impact. The commercial world, and what part of the world, I kept asking myself, is not now commercial, is conceived of as an adult world, adults buying and selling as equals. But pose the commercial world against children, and you are likely to think of advertisers and marketers manipulating children's innocent and naive minds. Children need to be protected against it. If we think of children as obese, if we think of them constantly searching inappropriate parts of the internet, if we think of them as prematurely sexualized, if we're bothered by pester power, the commercial world surely has much to answer. Children, we might say, have a right to a life without any of these things. Children, and I think it's a very telling world, are seen as vulnerable. Adults, by contrast, also obese, also searching inappropriate parts of the internet, their whole world sexualized and eroticized, 
their insatiable desire for material goods, what makes the world go round, adults can survive without protection. We probably don't much like this adult life. We're perhaps rather ashamed of it, but at least we think we can spare children from it. Life is downhill. We often say that childhood has been shortened, that children go up too quickly. To a historian, this looks nonsense. On the contrary, it's been extended. It lasts officially now up to 18, but I think you would have found very few people who had thought it lasted much beyond 10 or perhaps 12 in the 18th century. And one sign of the lengthening of childhood is the shift in the cash flow. Until roughly the mid-20th century, children typically tipped up their earnings to their mothers who gave them back something for spends. Cash flowed from children to parents. Would that that was still the case, some of you may be thinking. <laughs> As many of us know to our cost, cash now flows the other way, from parents to children, and there seems no age at which it will or should end. If one sign of being an adult is to be financially independent, then children in their 20s and 30s have yet to attain that status. But if childhood has been extended, it has also been, and this will sound a contradiction, shortened. We constantly hear of children doing things at an age much younger than adults now in their middle age ever did. Children today may not be able to cross a road on their own, but they're integrated into a world of social media, fashion, and celebrity in ways older people were not. What has happened? is that the boundary fences between childhood and adulthood, those which Postman was so worried about coming down, have indeed broken down. So-called adults behave like children, and be children behave like adults. And if we ask why this has happened, one answer, I think, is that the prospect of adulthood is pretty bleak. If you find work, which is difficult enough, then adulthood means work, and we've learned in the last quarter or century or so that work means stress. For many, work means, well, life means paid work plus unpaid childcare, a recipe for even more stress. I've heard many people say, I had an idyllic childhood. I've never heard anyone say they are enjoying an idyllic adulthood. Of course, the idyllic childhoods are constructions made by adults. They're actually pointers to, see, to how we see the life course. Narratives make sense of the world, but they do not necessarily reflect the world as it is. The narratives I've considered are extremely powerful, in effect mindsets that can incorporate into the story anything that's thrown at them. Huge number of adults in 21st century of Britain have bought into the negative narrative and internalized it, clinging onto a romantic and idealized view of childhood. If there are lessons to learn, I think they come from the Scandinavian countries, which to no one's surprise do well in the UNICEF surveys. Why? First, it has something to do with greater equality. If you ask why Britain came 21st, 
in 2007, it's worth looking at the country which came 20th, which was the United States. The US and Britain are on almost every count among the two most unequal societies in the developed world. Inequality feeds social exclusion and damages children's sense of their well-being. And it's not only the poor who suffer from this. Parents are all too aware, aware of how their children's future is dependent on school success and, of course, convey this to their children. We want our children to be happy, perhaps even more we want them to achieve. But second, besides being less unequal, Scandinavia, seems to me, has a rather different view of children than in Britain. In Britain, children are seen as vulnerable, basically deficient in the qualities and aptitudes that would enable them to survive in the world without adult supervision and helicoptering parents. In Scandinavia, the attitude is more that children are basically competent and can be trusted to be sensible. Encouraging competence sounds a rather unexciting aim for childhood. It is at the opposite pole to the romantic conception of child, childhood. And I think that would be all to the good. It might even mean that the issue of childhood became less fraught, discussions of it less emotional. We might be able to change the narrative or even do without one. Thank you. For all information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.